Uh, I am going to try to address the question that Father Thomas Davenport reminded me I was supposed to address. Uh, uh, I have to admit, um, the way that I think Father Nicanor's talk went, where at the end he was, you know, setting up for a conversation about, you know, how do we make sense of the emergence of novel forms? What's the picture with, you know, agent causality on a Thomistic account? Uh, that's a lot of what I was interested in and thinking about. You know, it's that consequence of recognizing all of this evidence for a historical developmental cosmos, and then, okay, how do you square that with Aristotelian and Thomistic uh, metaphysical and natural philosophical uh, principles? I will try to actually address the question uh, that, that he had in mind along the way, though, and it, because it is a very important, uh, a very important question. Um, I was going to begin um, with a sort of another, you know, defense of the importance of and helpfulness of engagement between Aristotelian and Thomistic natural philosophy and the findings of contemporary science. Um, I can do that again during the Q&A. Hopefully the, the exercise of the talk manages to, to be a, a sort of defense. I think there's already been a, a wonderful defense and demonstration of the value of this sort of conversation uh, in all of the presentations that we've had in this workshop. Um, so I am going to just jump in from where we left off from the sessions this morning. Uh, we have heard in the sessions this morning a general overview of central points of the best present consensus among cosmologists and biologists of the history of our universe and of the evolution of life on our planet. And even prescending from the details of their presentations, the scientific work of the past century has uncovered very strong evidence in favor of the thesis that in many respects the natural order that we uh, observe today is different from the natural order of the past thinking about the notion of natural order just in terms of and the way that an Aristotelian would in terms of the variety of natural kinds and the range of causal relationships that natural kinds have with one another for their coming to be, their continuing to be, and their passing away. So suffice it to say, a universe of hydrogen and helium does not yet actually have, in this sense, the same sort of complex natural order as a universe that has complex chemistry or a biosphere. Now, I've titled my presentation today, Thomistic Natural Philosophy in a Natural Order with a History, because the very fact that the present natural order of things seems to have any history at all to speak of occasions numerous questions, pressing questions, that proponents of Aristotelian and Thomistic philosophy must address. The most critical of these questions have to do with identifying what natural agents or natural efficient causes there are for the drawing forth or the uh, adduction of new forms from the potentiality of matter over time. So this is the, the question that Father Nicanor really concluded his talk with. So I'm going to raise uh, questions having to do with this in the first section of my lecture, but what I'm also going to be doing there is sketching some of the features of Aristotle's static eternal cosmology, and I'm going to touch on such issues as the mixture of the elements, and Aristotle's accounts of spontaneous uh, generation and his account of hybridization in the generation of animals. So those are details from his biology. And then I'm going to detail some of the developments that occur in this broad cosmological and biological account in the later peripatetic tradition up to and including St. Thomas Aquinas. And I'm going to suggest that there are abundant philosophical resources available in Aristotle and in the peripatetic tradition for identifying natural agents or efficient causes responsible for the emergence of novel forms. In the second section, however, I'm going to point out a few respects in which contemporary cosmology, chemistry, and biology are rather difficult to square with the identification of the agents or efficient causes of substantial change advanced in the traditional peripatetic cosmology. Now, of course, some of these difficulties are more obvious, but others are less so. Resolving these difficulties is well beyond what I can propose to do in a brief lecture, but I will try to sketch on a couple of points, I think some possible resolutions, more importantly, I'll try to indicate why I think the resolution of these problems could provide a helpful key to accounting for agent cause, uh, causality 
in a developmental cosmos. Um, and then time permitting, I want to conclude with some discussion of instrumental causality uh, and the relationship between divine causality and, and agent natural causes. I'll say at least something very briefly, but I might not have time for as much as I'd, I'd like to say. All right. Um, so the first very long section, uh, Father asked me to write uh, you know, a lecture um, talking about how to deal with you know, history, right, and that the cosmos seems to have a history, and how do we square that with Aristotelian science? Uh, and I, I worry with this section, I ended up writing a history of Thomistic natural philosophy on these questions. So I guess those are slightly different things, but uh, hopefully it's, uh, it's still helpful. All right. Okay. Um, if you recall from uh, towards the end of Father Nicanor's presentation, he put up the, the picture of the Aristotelian cosmos as St. Albert interprets it, right? Uh, with the earth at the center and the celestial spheres uh, surrounding it. And this is fundamentally in continuity with Aristotle's account of the order of the cosmos. So for Aristotle, the cosmos, in his conception of the cosmos, the celestial ethereal spheres rotate in eternal regularity around the domain of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. For Aristotle, this sublunary region is the domain of substantial change, of generation and corruption. The heavenly spheres, and especially the sphere that carries the sun, act upon the sublunary domain, causing by their eternal rotation and by the sun's causing heat the cyclical transformation of the four elements. So fire tends to become air, air tends to become water, water tends to become earth, earth tends to become fire, and so on. The cyclical rotation of the heavenly spheres also, by virtue of causing that cycle of transformations, also causes the cyclical combination and separation of the elements into the various homogeneous, non-living mixed bodies whose essences consist fundamentally in the ratio of the elements found within them. And I'm just restating something that's come up um, in a few of the, the previous uh, lectures. All right, Aristotle's conception of the cosmos as an eternal static order coheres well with his understanding of scientific knowledge as demonstrated knowledge of necessary eternal truths. The universally understood essences concerning which one achieves properly scientific knowledge are, generally speaking for Aristotle, the essences of things that always have and always will exist. Sometimes this aspect of Aristotle's thought is pointed to by itself as a reason for the incompatibility of Aristotelian thought with a developmental or evolutionary cosmos. Contrary to how Aristotle's thought is often portrayed, however, he does in fact account for the possibility that things about which there can be scientific knowledge should nevertheless exist at some times and not at others. And a few will come up uh, as we get later into the presentation. So even though there is in Aristotle a very close connection and often it seems an effective identification between the notions of the eternal and the necessary, Still, Aristotle's account of essences can easily accommodate at least some essential kinds that are not always instantiated. And, of course, this possibility is tremendously important for any Christian Aristotelian committed to the universes, in fact, having had a temporal beginning some finite time ago. It cannot be that the very possibility of scientific knowledge should depend upon the eternity of the universe. Um, it's at this point that I want to say something about uh, Father Davenport's question that was based on that objection that Thomas had made. One shouldn't make as an objection against the eternity of the world. You shouldn't appeal to this you know, sort of forensic data, you know, that it seems as if arts have risen and fallen, right, or, you know, or that there's been some development in human knowledge in the past, and so it just can't be the case that the universe has been around forever. Uh, so just to say a few things about this. First, it's important to note that that reply to that objection is a very limited response based on Aristotle's own reply to the very same concern. I mean, Thomas cites the text from the Meteorology, and following Aristotle, Thomas tries to give an explanation or, or notes that he thinks there can be an explanation given in terms of necessary truths about human nature and about the world. 
of how there could be a rise and fall in the relative advancement of human knowledge in art, even though the, even though the world is uh, is eternal. Um, I would note that when Thomas, uh, in the reply to the objection, he does say one should not reject the eternity of the world on the basis of particular changes of this sort, right? He says, of this sort. And I would just propose, I think it's important to, to recognize there might be other mutations that would very quickly for any Aristotelian call into question the commitment to the eternity of the universe and the eternal rotation of the sphere. So if, for example, um, all the planets just blew up, Right? Okay. <laughs> that would be a particular mutation that, without doubt, <laughs> would cause Aristotle to call into question everything he does in Physics Book 8. Okay? So, it, it's, so it, this is to say that there has to be some limit to the restriction, whatever restriction Thomas is placing on a sort of like forensic evidence concerning changes that seem to have happened in the past. There has to be some limit on that um, as a, a limit on you know, data that's relevant for science, for natural philosophy. Because it's a more fundamental principle for St. Thomas that every judgment in natural philosophy must ultimately be in accordance with and must be judged by sense experience. And going back to the very beginning of the workshop, this is why when Father Brent introduced the principles of nature they were based on general sense experience. Okay. Every judgment made in natural philosophy has to be in accordance with what is known through the senses. Okay. All right. But still, there's a, there's a question. Can there be strict demonstrative certainty or scientific knowledge in St. Thomas's sense that the world began a finite time ago in a less developed state and then evolved into the state that we observe today well, very famously, St. Thomas's answer to the former part of that question is no. In principle, there can be no demonstration one way or another about whether the universe has always existed or not. Um, and I think he's, um, at the end of the day, I think he's going to hold to that position um, pretty much without, uh, without any limitation. Um, but that doesn't mean that Forensic evidence that seems to point towards the present order of things having had a past wouldn't still be relevant for the project of science. Um, here I need to introduce just very quickly the notion of hypothetical necessity. I think a couple of the speakers have mentioned this notion. Uh, so hypothetical necessity uh, is a, you express hypothetical necessity through a proposition of the following form. Um, if A is to be, then B must be. Right. Okay. And uh, Aristotle and Thomas's typical example is: if a saw is to be, there must be metal. Right. If you want to have a saw, you first have to have metal. Okay. So that's hypothetical necessity. Uh, statements of hypothetical necessity for Aristotle and Thomas can be known with demonstrative certainty. Okay. On the basis of causal knowledge. Um, you can take any statement of hypothetical necessity and put it into the past tense. Right. So on the basis of knowing some hypothetical necessity, if you know that if A is to be, then B must be, then you also know that if A came to be, then B must have been. Okay. You know that also, the whole statement with uh, necessity. Okay. All right, so some other examples of this. If a chicken egg came to be, a chicken must have already been. Or if water came to be for the very first time, hydrogen and oxygen must already have been. It's important to note here, though, that it's the whole conditional sentence that is arguably, at least necessarily, true and that could be known with absolute certainty. It's on the basis of forensic evidence that we would accept the truth of the antecedent. Okay? So if water came to be for the first time, we might have a lot of good reason for thinking that water did come to be for the first time, even if forensic evidence would fall short of like the very high standard for demonstrative knowledge. Okay. This being said, even though demonstrative knowledge is the, the end term, it's the purpose, it's the ultimate goal that you hope for in Aristotelian science, this does not mean that anything that falls short of demonstrative knowledge is 
uh, irrelevant to or, or, you know, not part of how Aristotle thinks about the work of natural philosophy. And just to mention one uh, theory that's been discussed a lot this week, and I'm going to discuss uh, a bit more as I go forward, the theory of the four elements was understood by both St. Albert and St. Thomas to have been established only dialectically and probably rather than demonstratively. That is, they understood Aristotle's theory of the four elements as just a, be- a best fit to the evidence sort of theory, not something that was strictly demonstrated. Okay, so all of that is to address one of the possible sources of concern um, sources of tension between a developmental cosmos and the Aristotelian uh, way of thinking about the cosmos and about uh, demonstrative knowledge. Um, it's sort of grounded in Aristotle's understanding of what demonstration and science are. But another and I think more important source of tension with a developmental cosmos in Aristotle's thought is found in a passage in his Metaphysics Book 9 in which he asserts the priority of actuality to potentiality in various modes, and one such mode that's named is temporal. The actual is prior to the potential in time, even if not in the individual, still in the universe as a whole. And one of Aristotle's examples is that previously existing actual humans generate humans. Okay. So... Even though within an individual human being, potentiality temporally precedes actuality as one goes from being an infant to being an adult, still there are adult human beings that generate the infant. So this emphasis upon the priority of actuality in temporal terms and and in the other respects in which uh, it's emphasized reaches a culmination in Aristotle's identification of the divine first principle as pure prior actuality which is a philosophical characterization of God embraced as very fundamental by St. Thomas um, in his first way of proving God's existence. But then this raises the question for us, given the evidence uh, considered in this morning's uh, sessions, or at least the the, the reasonably well-founded conclusions presented this morning. In a universe in which it seems that there is only a gradual emergence or escalation of new forms and of layered complexity, The question arises as to whether we can still conclude that the ordered actuality of the universe, in fact, points us toward the priority of the purely actual and simple divine being. For our best forensic evidence does now indicate that in the order of time, lower, less actual forms seem to have preceded higher, more actual forms. So again, this is the question posed by Father Nicanor. Where do these new forms, these novel actualities come from? To restate the problem a little bit more clearly, if we distinguish with Aristotle between matter and form, and if we understand a substantial change to involve the coming to be of this form in this matter, then we will identify as the agent or efficient cause of the change whatever is responsible for this form being in this matter. So what a physical agent, what a physical efficient cause does for Aristotle and for St. Thomas is to cause the the informing of matter. And St. Thomas offers a helpful distinction here, a terminological distinction, um, between eduction and infusion, between educing a form and infusing a form, Uh, So educing, drawing forth, right, as opposed to infusing, pouring in, okay? And he insists that it's better to think generally of natural agent causes as drawing forth forms, educing forms from the potentiality of matter, rather than as putting forms into matter. And one of the few cases where St. Thomas will use the language of infusion is when he talks about the special case in which... um, God creates and infuses the human soul at the beginning of human life, okay? That's infusion, right? Because there isn't actually a natural potency for the human form in matter. God has to infuse it. Okay, all right. All right. Uh, So we're interested in the question of uh, agent causality. What are the agents that induce forms from matter? Well, Aristotle would give as examples of agent causality 
when a horse causes another horse in sexual reproduction, or when fire causes water to transform into air. In each of these examples, Aristotle identifies one substance as exercising agent causality according to some active power that it possesses, while the matter that comes to be informed in a new way is passive in relation to that agent. For Aristotle, however, not all instances of substantial change involve this uneven opposition between an active agent and passive matter. For in Aristotle's account of elemental mixture, which has come up a number of times this week, Aristotle characterizes two bodies that enter into a mixture with one another as reciprocally active and passive, so that the hot heats the cold and the cold cools the hot and so forth for the wet and the dry, until there is produced by this mutual interaction a homogeneous blend with some definite ratio of those elemental qualities. So here it's not just one pure agent and one pure patient, it's two interacting agents and patients. Now, as indicated just a few moments ago, Aristotle points to biological reproduction within the same species as a prototypical indication of the temporal priority of actuality within the universe. Not all living things, however, are generated by reproduction on Aristotle's view, as he also holds to a theory of spontaneous generation. Some living things, both plants and animals, come to be, he thinks, just by the activity of heat in the atmosphere, acting upon certain sorts of matter, such as putrefying flesh or slimy mud. Now, there's some indeterminacy about what results from spontaneous generation for Aristotle, but it's principally dependent upon the character of the matter in which the spontaneously generated organism emerges rather than upon some differentiation in the power of the agent. Okay? And that's why it's just by chance. The matter has to sort of come together in the right way, and then the heat right, draws forth this, this, new, this soul of um, a spontaneously generated living thing. Now, Aristotle thinks that spontaneously generated organisms can be capable of reproduction, but he doesn't think that their reproduction can continue indefinitely. He thinks that um, a spontaneously generated organism can reproduce, but its offspring can't, okay, for reasons. He, um, this is a matter both of misleading empirical observations, I mean misleading first for thinking that there was spontaneous generation, and then also misleading for thinking that the things spontaneously generated don't go on to reproduce. Uh, so misleading empirical observations, and then some conclusions to various dialectical argumentation found in his biological works. Okay. Now, that heat is, for Aristotle, capable of adducing organic forms from matter is not only a feature of his account of spontaneous generation, for it is also fundamentally by virtue of its possessing heat that he thinks that seed or semen is capable of adducing form from matter. So in the case of animal sexual reproduction, Aristotle thinks that the role of the female is just to supply the matter from which the active semen adduces the form or soul. Um, we can't, I, I was going to get into, but I think just for the sake of time, I might uh, skip over this, some of the uh, details of Aristotle's account of normal sexual reproduction um, uh, but I, I'm just going to have to set those aside and, and continue talking about spontaneous generation. Okay. So um, with respect to spontaneous generation, it's worth acknowledging how powerful this theory was in the history of natural science, which is evident from how long it took for the theory to finally be falsified and to be falsified in every respect. Uh, because it kind of lived on with respect to bacteria, even after it had been shown that you know maggots don't spontaneously generate out of you know uh, meat, um, it still lived on for quite a while longer with respect to other living things. And it wasn't for any lack of effort to try and falsify. It's just no one was able to to perform an experiment that falsified it. Uh, Father Nicanor mentioned a book by uh, Darren LeHoux, uh, Creatures of, uh, Born of Mud and Slime. Um, and I would highly recommend this book uh, for uh, details about the history of the theory of spontaneous generation. As LeHoux details, many developments concerning the theory of spontaneous generation occurred within the Aristotelian tradition um, with a wide range of views emerging about which sorts of living things can or cannot be spontaneously generated 
and what the agents responsible for the adduction of these novel forms um, are. So there's a lot of disagreement and discussion within the Aristotelian tradition about those questions. Now, critically, Aristotle's sharp division between spontaneously generated organisms that fail to reproduce in kind and organisms capable of successive generation in kind was not maintained by all within the later tradition, as it came to be thought that there are some species that could reproduce that could also arise by spontaneous generation. And in fact, this is St. Thomas's view. Uh, in the commentary on the metaphysics, he makes this point explicitly concerning plants. He thinks that there are lots of plants that can be spontaneously generated and then go on to reproduce uh, in successive generations. But this is a rather tame position compared to Avicenna. Avicenna asserts that any living species whatsoever, up to and including human beings, can be produced under the right material conditions by spontaneous generation. Now, this is tied up with Avicenna's positing of uh, the immaterial giver of forms, uh, which is something that I might bring up um, in the Q&A if if we talk a little bit more about instrumental causality. Um, But, uh, yeah, Avicenna has this extreme view, and in fact, he thinks that uh, human beings have in the past been wiped out and then brought back by spontaneous generation. Okay, all right. So that's, that's in the tradition, like in the Aristotelian tradition, that, that position exists. Okay. One other critical point of development after Aristotle is that um, it comes to be the heavenly bodies in the plural that are identified as causes of spontaneous generation rather than just atmospheric heat that's caused by the sun. So whereas in Aristotle's account, it is the conditions of the appropriate matter alone that explain what emerges from spontaneous generation, in the later tradition, a much greater determining role is attributed to the stars in general. And then once you have multiple stars working together, you start to care about the alignment of the stars, and suddenly you have a role for astrology in explaining what exactly is spontaneously generated. Okay. Um, One of the other consequences of this view, where instead of it principally depending upon the disposition of the matter and instead depending upon the disposition of the stars, uh, like putting all the active potency on the side of stars, uh, is that some thinkers in the peripatetic tradition uh, tradition, um, think that it's even possible for living forms to be mistakenly adduced in the wrong sort of matter. And this is an explanation for fossils that appears, right, uh, at various points in the tradition, including it's acknowledged as at least a possibility by St. Albert. So St. Albert, there are some things that St. Albert points to and says, yeah, the stars could have generated that form in the wrong matter. Okay, all right. Finally, and here LeHoux makes another critical contribution It seems that it may be a view peculiar to and original to St. Thomas himself that there is just a sharp division between the lower imperfect animals that can be spontaneously generated and the higher perfect animals that cannot be. And I think the way that Thomas tend to think about the principle of proportionate causality is tied closely to St. Thomas's insistence on that that distinction between the lower things that can be spontaneously generated and the higher things that that can't be. Now, St. Thomas does repeatedly express this view. He thinks that higher, more perfect animals only arise after their first creation by God through reproduction in like kind. Although it's important to note that he takes this to be, I think, mistakenly, Aristotle's view And so he typically justifies holding this view by reference to Aristotle's authority. But as LeHoux argues, and I think successfully, Aristotle's distinction between perfect and imperfect animals just doesn't line up with St. Thomas's. Um, And it should also be noted that St. Thomas, again, diverges from Aristotle in his view that spontaneously generated living things can go on to reproduce in kind. Um, Let me just say something very, very briefly about um, hybridization. Um, So the typical example of a hybrid species for Aristotle and St. Thomas is the mule, okay? 
And it's often thought that for Aristotle and Thomas, um, the mule is not a genuine species, and it's not a genuine species because it's a hybrid and because it can't go on to reproduce. Okay? This is clearly not the view either of Aristotle or of St. Thomas. Okay? So St. Thomas clearly refers to the mule as being of a distinct species. And um, Aristotle considers directly um, the possibility, like the, as a dialectical argument, that one would conclude to the infertility of the mule just that it's infertile because it was right the offspring of two distinct species, and so it doesn't have like a power for, for making something like itself. That's just clearly not Aristotle's view for two reasons. First, he directly considers that when he's discussing the mule um, in uh, on the generation of animals, and he calls that a vain, empty argument from overly general principles. And then goes on to give a specific account of what it is about the natures of horses and donkeys that, when put together, when blended together, results in something that's not capable of reproducing. Okay. Second, and more importantly, in On the Generation of Animals, Aristotle recognizes many fertile hybrid species. Okay, so it's um, that that typical view about the mule, you know, not being of a species because it can't reproduce. It's just not St. Thomas's view, and it's not. Um, it's not Aristotle's view either. And St. Thomas responds to, um, when he's one, in one case where he's discussing the mule, and he's directly concerned with the question of, you know, how can there be an agent cause for something that's new, like the mule, if presumably after God creates horses and donkeys, and then later, at some time later, the mule emerges. And St. Thomas's response to that difficulty is to say that, in a way, by having created the horse and the donkey, right, God created the, the mule in a sort of extended way. Okay. So when you think about the principle of proportionate causality, you know, you can't give what you don't have, there's a sense for St. Thomas in which the horse and the donkey do have the mule. Okay. All right. Okay, that was a very long first section, and I think I've done exactly what I said I was uh, going to do, just a lot of history of Thomistic uh, natural philosophy and biology. Uh, Why is all this important? From a historical perspective, the Aristotelian theory of spontaneous generation as well as hybridization and all the range of views concerning these topics within the peripatetic tradition should at the very least give us some pause before we assume the utter incompatibility of a developmental cosmos with an Aristotelian philosophical framework. For if Aristotle and Aristotelians generally acknowledge that heat in the air is able, in a chance occurrence, to adduce in a very short time frame forms of living things, souls, uh, then it at least seems reasonable for us to pursue natural explanations for the development of the higher from the lower. Okay, and we shouldn't think that there's a, a rock-solid argument just from the peripatetic tradition against that possibility, okay, because there's not. Okay, um, I have maybe five. Yeah, okay. Um, I think I should talk about uh, instrumental causality and divine agency. Uh, I wanted to talk about... Um, fundamental difficulties in the Aristotelian um, account of uh, the mixture of the elements and of uh, the the reproduction of living things. Um, And I'll just say, I just want to say one thing about this. Um, One of the themes that I think came up at a few points during the week, and I think something that Father Thomas was was interested in in having us um, uh, focus our attention on, um, is the manner in which uh, contemporary chemistry is particularly difficult uh, for us to deal with in Aristotelian physics, and it requires a lot of rethinking. Um, because for Aristotle, the bright dividing line between the living and the non-living is the line between the heterogeneous and organized and the homo- homogeneously mixed. And so the fact that there is chemistry, that there are mixtures that an Aristotelian should think of as substances uh, where um, there is organization or structure and heterogeneity as a part of your explanation of the, of the, the properties and the characteristics of those natural kinds, that doesn't fit 
into the Aristotelian framework very easily. Um, and it's something that I think requires a lot of rethinking. Um, so I, um, I'm going to uh, leave that behind. I just want to say something before I finish about um, the notion of instrumental causality and um, St. Thom- Thomas's principle concerning the importance of instrumental causality. Okay. So uh, this is something that came up in discussion after Father Nicanor's talk. It, it is to be granted if one is um, a Catholic, if one is a theist, if, and certainly if one is a Thomist, that God is to be identified as the first agent responsible for all actualization in the created order. And every action by some created agent is always as an instrument of the divine agency. Okay? Creatures have no power to do anything actively except by the divine active power. Okay? The question um, within Thomistic metaphysics and philosophical theology and more broadly within Aristotelian metaphysics is, well, okay, how much agency does the, the non-divine agent have? That's the question. And St. Thomas um, is aware of and um, discusses a position that we now know as occasionalism, a view according to which um, God, in fact, by his power, does everything immediately. And there's just regularities in nature that might make it seem like one natural thing does something to another natural thing. But in fact, all the sort of patterns that you observe in nature are nothing but the occasions for God's causing things to happen. So if you take fire and you, you know, put it next to cotton and the cotton combusts and burns, uh, the occasionalist is going to say the fire did not burn the cotton, right? God caused that. He, right, he made that be in a different way. And the fact that he had previously made the cotton be near the fire was just the occasion for his doing the next successive thing. Okay. And it's important, I think, to bring up the notion of occasionalism um, in uh, discussing how to bring Aristotelian philosophy into conversation with contemporary science. Um, because if you're just on the level of a really successful predictive quantita- you know, uh, uh, quantitative model, right, um, Typically, quantitative models, really successful predictive models, can be perfectly compatible with occasionalism, right? By itself, it doesn't tell you uh, what does what, or if anything within the system that you're modeling, you know, whether anything does anything, whether anything is an agent. Okay. Um, So that's the the extreme view that St. Thomas, in fact, very much wants to oppose, St. Thomas wants to insist instead that it pertains to the excellence of the divine power that as far as possible, God achieves what he intends to achieve through the real created agency of creatures. Okay, And that's a fundamental principle for St. Thomas that appears everywhere in his philosophical theology and in his revealed theology. Um, St. Thomas... um, Opposes himself not only to occasionalism but also to this view of Avicenna, right? Where all that thing for Avicenna, all that things in the sublunary do, all that natural agents that can move around do, is to cause accidental changes that are dispositive to what this celestial immaterial force called the the, the giver of forms does, giving the form, right? Okay. Um, sometimes in discussion of uh, evolution and uh, how to reconcile it with uh, Thomistic metaphysics, um, there's a very quick move. To, look, at the end of the day, we can always say God did it. Okay, At the end of the day, it's always possible to say whatever the natural agents were capable of doing, maybe they weren't capable of inducing a novel form, and it had to have been by divine power that this was done. And it's not really then through instrumental causality. It's by a sort of special instance of divine action. Okay. That is a route that one can go, but I don't think it's a route that's really consistent with St. Thomas's principle. At the very least, St. Thomas's principle that as far as possible God achieves his intended ends through the created agency of creatures 
Um, At the very least, we should be wanting to find some way in which, in the natural, corporeal, created order, there is something that performs the function that Thomas attributes to the sun and that Aristotle even attributes to ambient heat in the atmosphere uh, when it comes to the adduction of, of novel forms. Um, Now, this is not to say that uh, we should accept, we shouldn't accept the theory of spontaneous generation itself, um, but just, it's just an indication that it's consistent with Aristotelian and Thomistic natural philosophy and metaphysics um, to hold that created natural agents can um, be instrumentally involved in the adduction of new forms in a way that isn't just... um, falling back on an, uh, an infusion of an entirely new form uh, by, uh, by the divine power. Okay. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you all for your attention. So just a very small, um, in, um, in the way that you phrased the first part of yeah. the question, um, uh, the best fit when I use that language, and that's probably that could have been that was probably misleading, misleading language for what I meant. What I meant, with the, it's definitely the case that Aristotle and Saint Thomas are committed to the truth of the judgment of earth, air, fire, and water really exists. Like they, they understand that as an ontological, or at least they are, you know, parts, of, real parts of um, homogeneous nature. So it isn't, it, there's an ontological status claim there. But not all you know, claims of that sort are held to be known with certainty by the force of you know, demonstrative arguments. Um, so when I said it's a best fit theory, or it's a dialectical or probable theory, like they think that theory is true, but they don't think they have the kind of certainty about it that they do about other you know, more fundamental claims within natural um, the second part of the question really invites me to do what I had thought about doing as a sort of introduction at the, at the first. I think it's helpful um, when thinking about how uh, natural philosophers and contemporary scientists can engage in conversation to maybe distinguish three different modes of conversation. Okay? So there's, there's the thing that all the, uh, the, the scientists have been witnessing the philosophers trying to do like, all week. Right, which is taking notions from Aristotelian natural philosophy and trying to fit them to and interpret right, the findings of contemporary science. Right? Or bringing to the findings of contemporary science questions that are structured by you know, the Aristotelian understanding of the cosmos at a very general level in terms of substance and accident, matter, and form, the causes, and all that. So that's, that's one way, I think, in which... Um, natural philosophy science interact. Um, just as important and, and uh, something that has to be acknowledged is that, of course, contemporary science also frequently corrects, right, um, and does away with errors in uh, the particular details of Aristotle's natural philosophy. So um, this is something that I think Father Grant said. You know, people who are committed to Aristotelian natural philosophy generally will say, well, we're committed to these really general and fundamental Notions, um, like matter and form and so on, we're not committed in the same way to any of the particular conclusions of Aristotle's biology or his theory of the elements. And in fact, we recognize that there's a lot that's, that's wrong. And of course, contemporary science um, updates and corrects that. Um, and then a third mode, I think, in which there's helpful engagement, maybe, maybe more for the philosophers than for the scientists, um, is through what I was trying to do in that very uh, section of the paper. Sometimes what happens when natural philosophers try to bring Aristotelian notions to bear on contemporary science 
they do so without a well-formed notion of how those same notions applied within Aristotelian science in its details. Um, and so all you've got is this, you, sometimes what can happen is all you have is this kind of vague notion of what form and matter and substance and accident and the four causes mean. And then you jump in and try to interpret what's going on in contemporary science. Where I think it's helpful as a sort of training, right, a philosophical training um, to try to figure out how Aristotle thought about those general notions in terms of his particular application. Uh, within all the details of the system. And even though, and that's the sort of value that, you know, a lecture that go, that's going through the details of Aristotle's elemental theory, like what value, you know, what value does that have now, right? It helps you to flesh out the more general Aristotelian notions within that other, you know, coherent, systematic, you know, account of natural philosophy, even though you know that a lot of the details are wrong. Okay. Yeah, uh, Dr. Carlson. I just would like to suggest that the commitment to an everlasting universe and the loss of that has much more profounder implications than I, I think you're perhaps willing to admit here. Especially, I think the ether is bound up with that, and the loss of the ether and the powerful causal role that that played uh, just creates a huge set of problems. Um, and then there's Aquinas, well, Zaristotle's own rejection of Empedocles' sort of evolutionary mm -hmm. uh, kind of theory. Yeah. So when you do get something like your 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 stars blowing up, and yeah. the two supernova, Rahe and Kepler, I mean, I can understand why you get a big revolution like you have in the scientific revolution, um, even allowing for all sorts of other uh, cultural and philosophical factors. It's a big problem. So yeah. um, would you agree with that? I, I mean, the whole notion of natural place that they had really was bound up with an everlasting kind of universe, it seems to me. And that, again, is pretty mm -hmm. profound. So, yeah. Yeah. so with respect to the third sort of engagement between natural philosophy and contemporary science, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, the, the, um, the implications of removing this we shouldn't say eternal order, though, right? I mean, we're, we're Christians. We don't think that it's actually eternal, right? I mean, Thomas is committed to this kind of, you know, view where it has, you know, the, the, the celestial, you know, spheres have this causal role to play that's as if they were eternal. And they're naturally, their, their existence is going to be naturally perpetual going forward, he thinks. But he doesn't think that their causal role they is going to go on forever. What's that? They have to stop. For it. No, exactly. Yeah. So, and that's I, and, and this is something that I said um, in in uh, the talk that I gave for this event last year, is that when you recognize that, like that's what Saint Thomas does, you know, with the Aristotelian cosmos, and it's not just that he says that it stops, right? He says that it stops, you know, on you know the basis of you know revealed teaching that there will be an end of time, right? But then the question is, well, why would it? Why is it fitting for there to be an end of time? And right, his answer is uh, because the entire purpose of the celestial order, right, is the bringing into being of the number of souls of the elect. Right. Can right? I That's like on? the point of the right. whole. Yeah. Can I push just slightly on that? Yeah. Because um, what he's got to do is reconsider the Aristotelian cosmos in order to have the telos be to bring forth the number of the, of the elect. Mm -hmm. If you're Aristotle, the bottom is the center. That's the least important stuff. The most important stuff, the spheres, those are in soul. And man is down here near the bottom. Okay. Yeah. So to reconceive that the way Thomas is doing is straining the Aristotelian cosmos Oh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I yeah. mean, that's almost not so Aristotelian cosmos. Sure. Every time he's finished yeah. with it. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know how really consistent. Well, it's it's not logically inconsistent, but it seems like a, you know, if you put it in a musical sense, the key seems really different. You see, I, I guess I just have a very different intuition on that front, because it seems to me if, it, if St. Thomas is willing to so radically reconceive the whole order of the Aristotelian cosmos, 
is being ordered towards right having the number of the saved souls, and then God shuts it down, right? <laughs> you know, or it shuts itself down. Even. I mean, he even characterizes it as its natural telos, right? Is the production of the right the number of he souls? Spheres, like. Yes, he's pulling the angel, he's pulling the souls out of the spheres. Those are angels. Um, yeah. Now man is the most important, even though he's a bottom color. Yeah. I, um, no, I, but I agree. But that, that my intuition is that St. Thomas's willingness to do that is the willingness to treat the entire physical cosmos as ordered towards right, the salvation of human beings. And that seems, perf- that seems like to me to be a perfectly good fit with a developmental cosmos. Right? Oh, I, I agree yeah. with that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But then you... We can give you more questions. We can maybe share that a little later. Uh, Sort of along those lines, just to I may overstate things a little bit. That do you think there are other Christian thinkers who might actually have pushed sort of historical cause a little bit further? So I'm thinking of even Augustine, the Rossione, Seminales, the Conceits, and the Diamonds of them. Max is the Confessor, the Logoi, Robert Gross test is like really kind of setting up a kind of maybe a little pushing. They're pushing a little bit even more on the classical. Cosmology and light, the doctrine of creation out of nothing, and then through that, like open up more historical cosmos, even than Aquinas did. And, and I'm just curious if, if that seems right, and if so, um, you know, why, you know, if we might reflect upon that, that, that Aquinas, I think you said something along these lines, like in this particular case, perhaps Aquinas is. Uh, more of a challenge than even other medieval theologians, at least for this particular question. Um, yeah, no, no that, that's right. It, it, and at least in one respect. I mean, it, Thomas takes this very peculiar position, um, which I think is right, but it is it does sound peculiar when you first hear it, right? That Thomas thinks there just can't be any demonstration one way or another about whether the world is eternal, right? I mean, most... Christian contemporaries are instead not just saying that Aristotle's demonstrations for the eternity of the world don't succeed. They're offering opposed de- opposing demonstrations for the contrary piece for the contradictory pieces. Um, so yeah, no, there, there's um, in the wider Christian theological tradition, right? There absolutely are thinkers who. Um, would be more um, open to various sorts of development and causes. But almost always as a function of their interpretation of first genesis, right, rather than as a function of inarticulated natural philosophy and metaphysics. Um, one thing to say about the Augustinian Ratzinus and Annalis there, it is important to note, it's pretty clear in Augustine that there's a there's a you know a seminal ratio. So a seminal ratio Thomas character characterized as an active potency that's present from the beginning of creation that's ready to bring forth some kind later in history when it encounters the right sort of you know, matter. Okay. Um, uh, Augustine, you know, posits Ratzinus and Annalis, but there's no, there's no like branching development. It's just there are the seeds of all things at the beginning, but it still created seeds for each thing. So I've been trying to connect the dots between the lectures, and I have some confusion, so I'm wondering if you can help. In the previous lecture, we heard that there was this thing called the principle proportion and causality, which should lead us to think that when a new species evolves, God supplies or infuses the essence along with supplying the existence. And then, so now what I'm hearing you say is that there's actually room in the Thomistic tradition for... Uh, agents within the created order drawing out new forms without God having to infuse them. Yes. So, can you explain how spontaneous generation does not violate the principle of proportionate causality? And also, if we can construct these two different accounts of evolution, one in which God infuses the essences, and one in which the essences are drawn out, um, are there any philosophical principles that should lead us to prefer one so to, to uh, begin at the end, I mean the, the philosophical, the Thomistic philosophical principle that would make you prefer deduction rather than infusion, right, 
is that infusion, I mean, the very meaning of infusion, like pouring forth of the form, right, that's going to be a higher, you know, agent. Um, and that's going to reduce the, the created natural agent to just the role of, of a disposing cause rather than an actual cause of the, of the form. So that, that would be, it would be, and it, the principle, right, St. Thomas' principle, that as far as possible, right, um, God reduces its independent effects through created agency, right? Um, that's the principle that moves him away from occasionalism, away from Madison, away from some things that he finds in, um, in Americans too. Uh, so it, it's, it, that's, a, that's a fundamental principle for St. Thomas. That that's the most perfect display of God's goodness in his power. Now, uh, remind the first part of the question you're just asking. I, I think when you recapitulate what I said, it was accurate. But was there something else that I don't think? Or just how, how does spontaneous generation not violate proportionate causality? So, force. This is where the fact that for Saint Thomas, right, the agent of spontaneous generation is the heavenly body or the set of the heavenly bodies, and he does also sometimes mention, you know, heat. It is through heat that you know the sun causes in the atmosphere that it spontaneously generates you know, a new living thing. But there are texts in which St. Thomas also, I mean, he does make clear, and this is something Father Nicomore said, I mean, it's because the sun is a higher and more perfect sort of being, right? And it's because it's moved by an angel. You know, it's because it actually thinks the heavenly sphere is moved by an angel, right? So there's a whole bunch of layers of created instrumental causality, Thomas thinks, whereby it is the case that God, through an angel, through the heavenly sphere, through the heat in the atmosphere, right, causes this, you know, the form of this, of this living thing. Um, so the, the trouble for us, the difficulty for us, if there isn't an, you know, an eternal domain of the spheres, um, how you, you know, um, What's the natural agent that can be, you know, an instrumental um, but proper cause of the deduction of a of a novel form? I think it's much easier in Aristotle, where um, the emphasis is just on the heat that's, that comes from the, it does come from the sun, but it's just it's uh, it's heat. I mean, the sun is a, it's a nat- it is a created natural agent, right? Uh, for uh, for Aristotle. So the question is. Uh, In the second section that I skipped over, uh, where all the speculative weird stuff that I was going to try and compose uh, was found. This is where I think it is helpful to point to two other phenomena that Aristotle um, recognizes. Uh, So, um, uh, and both of which were discussed um, the mixture of the elements and um, hybridization as other sort of contributing, you know. uh, Theses for the claim that there is consistency in Aristotle's natural philosophy with you know, the deduction of new forms by, by lower agents. And the reason why I bring those up as a pair is that in Aristotle's account of homogeneous mixture, you do get a new mixture with new properties, right, that just aren't absolutely right reducible to you know the ratio of the elements, right? Um, and it's from their being both active and passive and coming into you know into mixture with one another, that it seems like he thinks you actually can get something a little more perfect or something with new properties. And the same thing I think is although I mean in Aristotle's account of you know hybrid reproduction, there's still is you know the horse or the donkey is male and the other is female. It's still a case this is something um, uh, when Aristotle brings up the mule in the metaphysics. Um, uh, and he says that um, he's trying to defend the claim that there is a likeness to the generator, right, in the mule, even though it's not a horse or a donkey. And what he says is, well, it's like both of them insofar as it seems to be of a broader genus like Lucifer. I think it's an important point that a mule is bred precisely because it's actually a better Lucifer than than a horse or a donkey. I mean, there's a lot of cost involved in intentionally producing an animal that can't go on to reproduce. Right? Um, and part of the reason that's done is because in many respects it's actually a, a better beast of burden than the, right, than the, the horse or the donkey. 
So there too, I would point to a great case where it seems like you actually do get something that's a little better, right? In, in, in at least some, in some respects, um, from it, you know, uh, from the mutual interaction of the two. I interject one. I think perhaps helpful clarifying thing as well. So the the, the picture you have in terms of spontaneous generation of um, sun through material heat uh, affecting. The sun and the heat are also completely involved in, in normal generation yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. It's just that there is also the direct agency of the father or the, the seed of the father as, as directed. Um, whereas, so in a certain sense, what's going on in spontaneous generation is what always happens. Like the sun is, 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 is the sun is always there as 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 highest agent cause, allowing any causality. There's always the sun causing natural heat. There's always that heat involved. It's just in the case of spontaneous generation, there's no seed. Yeah. And so there's like there's one there's one piece of this very high chain that has been skipped in the case of spontaneous generation. The argument being that it's simple enough that you don't need the seed. Yeah. Like the, the matter is enough for it to, to work out as you're Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. No, no, that, that's exactly right. Um, and I'm glad that you bring it up. Uh, in connection with this this you know theme that it's important for St. Thomas that God produces his effects through created natural agents. Um, that case, right, you know, Thomas says higher more perfect animals can't be spontaneously generated, the lower imperfect animals can be spontaneously generated. That's usually read as a limit on the power of the, you know, sublunary agent, right? But it's, it's just as much a limitation on the agency of the sun, right? Because for lower and imperfect things, the sun can, as it were, cut out the middleman, right, and, and induce the you know induce the higher form, right. But Thomas states, no, the sun can't cut out the middleman when it comes to a more perfect animal. So I don't think that that's even the best. It's not the best. It's the principal concern, you know, when Thomas says that you know perfect animals require individual generation, that is generation in kind. I don't think it's principally motivated by you can't get what you don't have. Or you know the principle of proportional causality. I actually think it's motivated instead um, from a concern for emphasizing the role of the, of the proximate natural agent. Um, the other thing, this is a, something I talked about a little bit in the, in the talk here last year, um, but there is a there is one text where Thomas does give a little bit of a reason for why he thinks for more perfect animals um, you can't have spontaneous generation. But what he says is. Well, there's just too much preparation. You know, they're they're too complex. There's just too much for the the, the you know the agency of the sun by itself to do, right? Um, it's just that they're too complicated, right? Um, it's but it's not tied so much to you know the high. It's not in terms of the hierarchy of being. It's it's in terms of the complexity of the matter, right? That's the that's the. Um, so I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit um, if there are differences between the kind of natural heat that you're talking about with, with the sun and, and modern heat, and specifically how vital heat might be the same or different, etc. So yeah, I was I, I kind of expected that I might get this question, and especially because I had a whole bunch of like parenthetical or perhaps a special form of heat, right? Because actually that is part of Aristotle's account. Um, one of the things that Aristotle says uh, on generation of animals, he takes note of the fact that he thinks that rainwater does a slightly better job of causing crops to grow than irrigated water. And that's because it has, it's, it's just fallen from being very close to the sun, so it has not just more heat, but more of like the right kind of heat, right, for contributing to, you know, uh, the growth of the So that is a distinction, it is a distinction in Aristotle between just heat and um, vital heat, and corresponding to that, the distinction between just air or hot air and uh, pneuma. Right, which sometimes Aristotle says just is hot air, and other times it's clearly air with the right kind of with the right kind of heat. Um, I'll just say that I think Aristotle's commitment to the notion of pneuma and of that special kind of light of heat is grounded in empirical observations, right? And what we would now recognize as problematic 
uh, empirical observations. So it's the fact that the sunlight seems to do a good job of right, um, spontaneously generating maggots from you know, decaying flesh where the campfire is. I mean, I think that's right. And then there's okay, there must be a special kind of heat, right, possessed by living things and you know, possessed by the sun, um, some special kind of heat or something. Um, but it's not always an important element in his in his explanations. Um, I don't want to I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. I mean, I, I think it does play an important role in his account, um, but I don't know to what it would be parallel. In. Would it, would it need to be kind of, um, I guess, to not violate proportion of causality, would it need to be some kind of a higher cause? Um, yeah, well, this is, I mean, this, this is a difficulty within Aristotle's account. It's just not clear what differentiates, you know, the, this heat from that, you know, from the other heat. Um, and um, so I, 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 I just also have to question something in terms of exactly what's going on. 